Job chapter 42, beginning in verse number 7 and going to the end of the chapter. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him, and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuk. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so he died old and full of years. As we've seen the past few Sundays in the second speech, when God speaks to Job, the essence of the discourse was this. Job, if you were in charge of the world, would you crush the wicked would you create the useless? Would you control the hostile? Because for all the wonder of God's creation that God talks about in his first speech to Job, not everything in God's creation is orderly. In the second speech, as we saw, God deals with the exceptions. Uh, those whom we probably would not include in a creation of our own. Those who, in our opinion, do not belong in God's creation. Those who are wicked, those who are useless, and those who are hostile to God. And in the second speech, indirectly, Job is asked, what would you do with these exceptions? And in response to the second speech, Job sees through to the truth of it all. If he were in charge of the world, it would be a world without grace. It would be a graceless world. A world without the wicked and the proud. A world without the ugly and the useless. And a world without hostility to God and his plan. In short, a world without grace. Let's think about this this week. I think another way for us to think about it is, what if you had your life to live over? What would you do? Now, of course we don't, okay. But what if you could? Certainly uh, an inviting and a tempting idea. But I would argue, if you think about it, that if we had our lives to live over, we would live graceless lives. That is, we would think, okay, if I had my life to live over, I would know the bad choices I should avoid. Those I didn't make, thank God, and, but those I did make, I would know to avoid them. I would know the good choices to make, the ones I did make, I would then make, um, and, the, and the good ones I did make along my life. I wouldn't make the same mistakes again. And without saying it, there is a hint of 
there would be no need of God's grace and direction in the decisions I would make because now I know what are the bad ones and what are the good ones. But stop and think a minute. Don't you realize that it is the grace of God that takes the choices we have made, both good and bad, and weaves them into the fabric, the tapestry of our lives. That it is the grace of God that takes the bad choices we have made and teaches us important lessons and then sometimes even uses them to turn our lives in new directions. Don't you realize that it is the grace of God that has affected the choices that now we call good in fact, it is the grace of God that turned them out into something good. They probably weren't such great decisions in the first place. The grace of God is not limited by our choices. You remember the story of Joseph and his brothers. After Jacob died, they were concerned that Joseph might retaliate. And Joseph says, you know, I'm not in God's place. He says, you intended to harm me. Bad choice. Okay? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. The Jewish nation continued to exist because of the bad choices of his brothers. Now, I don't want to downplay the significance of our choices and the real consequences that may result from our choices. I'm personally convinced that we do not suffer the full consequences of our choices, and that is the grace of God. But after the second speech, we find that for Job, the question is no longer, why has this happened to me? The question is, who? And the answer to the question, who is God? And as we see, as we saw last week, that God is the one whose power can do anything for him. His purpose has accomplished what it should for Job. His will is good for Job. His presence is real to him. His grace is given to him. And now Job has the correct perspective. So one author puts it, now he has seen the grace of God. No longer does he have to demand an explanation for every mystery. He has put his trust in God. To the question, who is God? Job has found the answer. He is the God of all grace. And if he is the God of all grace, then to ask why is no longer necessary. Today we come to the last section of Job. It marks an end, you may notice, depending on your translation, that it is the end of the poetic part of Job. The first two chapters are prose, and these last verses are also prose, and in between is poetry. It has been suggested that if you read the first two chapters and then skip to the end, you know, skip, you know, cut out all the poetry, that you would have a really incomplete picture because what you would have is you would know about Job as he was you would know about the difficulties that came upon him uh, where he says wonderfully the Lord gave the Lord has taken away blessed be the name of the Lord and then at the end God rewards him for his faithful endurance but then you would have missed the part in between as Job struggles with his friends as he seeks to find out why this has happened to him in the NIV, at least the translation of the version I have, it has epilogue as the title for this particular section. Um, usually this is a, a literary device to sort of round out, to bring everything to a head so we know, you know what this story has all been about. Um, you should know, at least I think you should, that there are many who are unhappy with this epilogue, that they think it doesn't belong in the book of Job. 
For some, it sounds too much like a fairy ending, a fairy tale ending. They live happily ever after. For some, it seems to to affirm the conventional idea that if you're a good person, God will reward you. And that Job was good and therefore God rewarded him. Others have argued, wouldn't it be more realistic to leave Job as he was, just devastated physically, sitting in the dung heap, the, the garbage heap of his town, having repented and seen the truth of who God is, but his condition not changing at all. Um, after all, isn't this the way most people's lives have been throughout human history? And so some people have just cut it out altogether, either in writing commentaries or in teaching about this. They just do not deal with this last portion of Job whatsoever. Uh, or those who are little, you know, they don't want to actually cut part of the Bible out. They see it as an addition, something that the editors put in to make it all turn out right. If you get rid of the epilogue, as many people do, then what you end up with is Job left where he is, either because God is unjust or because he is powerless. And in either case, we are left to our own devices to survive the tragedies of life. And this is in part the message of Rabbi Kushner's book, and you've probably heard of it, uh, when good things or when bad things happen to good people. And at the end of his book, he basically says, you're on your own, that you have to take matters into your own hand. And he asks a series of questions. And one of them is, are you capable of forgiving and loving God even when you have found out that he is not perfect? Well, that's certainly something very different than what we find in the book of Job. But if you get rid of the epilogue, then yes, you're sort of left with that. This is very different than what you find in the book by Philip Yancey, uh, Where is God When It Hurts? He says, he has been there from the beginning. He has watched us reflect his image. He has used pain even in its grossest forms to teach us. He has let us cry out and echo Job. He has allied himself with the poor and the suffering. He has promised supernatural strength to nourish our spirit. He has joined us, hurt and bled and cried and suffered. He has dignified for all time those who suffer. He is with us now. He is waiting. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Beyond the fact that it is in Scripture, and therefore it is Scripture, I think this epilogue is important for a number of reasons. First of all, it is a vindication, a public vindication of Job. You know, it was Job who said at the beginning, as I said, after he lost everything, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And he said to his wife when she said, you know, Job, curse God and die. Get it over with. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? While he was guilty of pride, God proclaims him innocent of the charges brought against him by his friends. God wants to go on public record so that there is no mistake that he preferred Job's doubts and attacks against him than the friend's defenses. That what Job said was right and what the friend said was wrong. I think it's also important because the positions of the friends must be seen as inadequate. And that if you push it too far, it's dangerous. 
uh, as we'll see in a bit, God condemns them for what they said, that you have spoken of me what is not right. And you know what? If we didn't have the epilogue, we would never know that. I think one more thing is important. Actually, there's several more, but one that I think is really important. Traditional wisdom in Scripture tells us you will reap what you sow. And generally speaking, that is true. It is not always true. Okay. But it is generally speaking to be the case. And so uh, one of the points of the book of Job is that there is not necessarily a connection between the things we are suffering and the things that we have done. But I think the book of Job at the end wants to confirm conventional wisdom that you do, in fact, reap what you sow. And so we see at the end Job as a righteous man enjoying prosperity. The epilogue, I think, helps us to make sense of what's gone on before. For example, to let us know that the friends uh, were wrong. I was talking to Ben earlier, and I was trying to think of a movie. And I think the movie The Sixth Sense sort of is a good example of this, that when you get to the end of the movie, suddenly everything that's happened before is seen in a new light. And if you're like me, you have to go and see it again, and then you're like, oh, yeah. But it's what happens at the end that sort of turns on the light, and then you understand what's happened before. And in this epilogue, now we know you know what, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they were dead wrong. They were so wrong. And Job was right. Without the epilogue, I think we would be in the dark with that regard. I mean, yes, Job is reconciled to God, but we don't know that what his friends told him was wrong. There are two parts to this epilogue. We will look at the first today, verses 7, 8, and 9, in which we see Job's friends condemned but then also restored. And then the Lord willing, next week we will see the blessing and restoration of Job. Let's just read this again, uh, verses 7, 8, and 9. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my friend Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite did what the Lord told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Here at the beginning of the epilogue, we find Job and his friends subjected to a new test. There's a test first for the friends. And then one last test for Job. The test for the friends. After speaking words of grace to Job, the Lord now speaks to Eliphaz. Someone that we assume to be the eldest of the three. He always speaks first and he is the one addressed here. So he is probably the older of the three. And the Lord tells him, I am angry with you and your two friends. One translation has, my anger burns against you. And why is that? Twice we are told, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. The three friends have been guilty of misrepresenting God. They have dishonored God in their arguments to Job. They are condemned for trying to justify God's ways to man. And in the process, in God's name, have devastated 
their friend and God's servant. As I said earlier, without this information, we wouldn't know that what the friends had said was wrong. You might remember that we said when we began this series in the book of Job, that there is some truth to what the friends say. That's what makes them so dangerous. You know, if it was all garbage, then we could just say, well, this is ridiculous. There's nothing to this. But there is, in fact, a grain of truth to what they say. I, I read this quote to you some months back when we began. John Calvin, in his first sermon on the book of Job, said, We have also to note that in the whole dispute, Job maintains a good case and his adversaries maintain a poor one. Now there is more. In other words, Job is right and they're wrong. Now there is more. That Job, in maintaining a good case, pleads it poorly. And the others, bringing a poor case, plead it well. When we have understood this, it will be to us, as it were, a key to open up to us the whole book. In other words, Job is right, but he does not do a good job of arguing his case. They're wrong, but they actually do a great job. In fact, if you read the two discourses, the two speeches by God to Job, much of what he says is a repetition of what the friends had said earlier. So there is some truth to what they say. But without God's declaration of anger here, we wouldn't know that there were things they said that were wrong and things that offended God. They were wrong. They limited God in the way he could respond to them. If you did good things, God had to reward you. If you did bad things, God had to punish you. Sort of a vending machine type of God. They had limited God to what he could do. And they made God a servant of the moral order rather than the author of that order. But I think beyond all things, their greatest sin was they failed to present God as a God of all grace. Job fails to do that as well, by the way. And so God here at the end has to reveal himself. I am the God of all grace. We could spend more time on what they did wrong, but I, I want to mention some other aspects. First of all, did you notice that four times in these three verses, God refers to Job as my servant Job? Did you catch that? I mean, four times we find it in these in these verses. I think actually in verses seven and eight in two verses. We find Job called this the first time when Satan goes to heaven and God says, have you considered my servant Job? We saw when we began our study that to be called the servant of God is not a small thing. In fact, if you go back through the Bible and look at people who are called the servant of God, it's fewer than 10 people. And there are a lot of people mentioned in the Bible, a lot of prophets, a lot of priests and ministers, apostles, very few are called the servant of God. So this is not a small thing. And at the end of it all, God just wants to reinforce, this is my servant. All he's been through, he is still my servant, Job. And I think the other thing I want you to see in this is that God's anger at the friends is not his last word. Rather, there is grace. And grace is the theme of this epilogue. And without the epilogue, I think we would lose sight of God's grace. God has to correct them. Uh, people might be dismayed that God gets angry at people. Yes, because you're doing wrong. The anger is to let you know you are wrong and you need 
to get back on track. And God says to these people, I'm angry and you need to correct what you have done. He gives them a place of repentance. These are the things I want you to do to show that you are sorry for what you've done. And by the way, it is not an easy road. In our time, repentance for many people means saying, I'm sorry. I blew it. My bad. And I'm sorry. That is not what repentance is. God says, give me seven bulls and seven rams for burnt offering. It's not an easy thing to do. First of all, it's a very expensive offering. Secondly, to give a burnt offering, a burnt offering is a sin offering. It is an admission of guilt. So first, they have to say, we were wrong. Here's their friend, because Job is still there in the garbage heap. He's still a mess physically. And they're wrong. Job's right. They have to admit that they were wrong. And then, almost as one author puts it, as to rub salt into the wounds, they have to go to Job for Job to pray for them. One author notes, it's a nice touch that under God's prompting, the sinner, that is Job, and the person of Job makes intercession for the saints, that is the three friends. The three guys who thought they were so righteous, nothing's happened to us. You're the guy in the garbage heap. You're the guy who's falling apart physically. Now God says, you go to him and he will pray for you and I will accept his prayer. The man they had accused of being a wicked man, they now have to go to and ask him to pray for them. Bildad called Job a maggot, a worm. And now he has to go to this maggot and ask him to pray for him. And the test for them is, will they do as God directs? Will they do what God says? They do, as we see in verse number nine. What about the test for Job? Here comes a real test for Job now. God has expressed his anger at his three friends. He has given them instructions about their repentance, including go to my servant Job so he can pray for them. The question is, will Job pray for them? Job, as we've seen earlier in the book, really values friendship and thinks it is very important that friends are to take care of friends even in the midst of great difficulty. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 14, I think, is an amazing verse. A despairing man should have the devotion of his friends, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Job says, listen, if I've turned my back on God, you should still be there for me. You should still be my friends. The question is now, will Job be their friend? To these men who have treated him so mercilessly, I mean, he's lost everything he owned. He lost his children. He's lost his health. And now his friends say, it's your fault that all of this has happened. Is he going to pray for them? Or would he do what I would be sorely tempted to do? It's like, you guys are toast. (laughs) I'm not doing anything for you guys. Why should I pray for you? Why should I? The test is, will he do this? 
And you will notice, if you look at the passage, God seems very confident that, in fact, Job will pray for them. My servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer. And and why is God so confident uh, beyond the fact that God knows all things? It is this. It is because God knows that Job has been the recipient of divine grace. That Job has received God's grace. And those who receive grace are those who in turn are gracious to others. One author asks a question and then answers it. How can we know if Job has been forgiven, accepted, and restored by God? The proof is in the grace that Job gives to his foes, his friends, and his family. Grace received is grace to be given. Because Job has been given great grace, he in turn is gracious to his friends. A sign of graciousness, or a sign of grace, is that we are gracious toward others. Jesus spoke of this in the Sermon on the Mount. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your heavenly Father will not forgive your sins. And unfortunately, many people read that passage and they see it as, oh, I forgive first and then God forgives me. And it's actually quite the reverse. It is because God has forgiven me that I in turn forgive. But if I don't forgive, it is, in fact, because God has not forgiven me. If I cannot be gracious to others, there's a very strong possibility it is because God has not been gracious to me. The reason we are to show grace is because we have been shown grace. And the lesson in the epilogue of Job is grace. And think about it. God speaks to Job in grace. Job recognizes God's grace. The Lord shows grace to the friends by giving them a place of repentance. Well, actually, first by correcting them and then giving them a place of repentance. Job shows grace in praying for his friends and the Lord accepts his prayer. And now, if you wish, at the end of the book, almost as it is at the end of a movie, now we have the part of the story that was missing all throughout And that is the grace of God. Now we realize when you look back over the 41 chapters that preceded it, there's been no mention by Job or his friends of the grace of God. Next week, the Lord willing, we will look at the blessing and the restoration of Job. But just in closing, the place of the grace of God, I think, is is something that the church lacks today. If I could be so blunt, I think that Christians in this generation are not very gracious people. And why is that? Those who have been shown grace are to show grace to others. I think it is because we want to be in control. I think we have not had a sense, as Job does after the first speech, of how small we really are. In in the world, in the universe, we are really tiny. We are so weak. I think we've lost sight of that. To go back to what I said at the beginning, it is really the grace of God that we don't have our lives to live over. Those of you who are younger perhaps don't 
experience this as much as those of us who are older and we look back over our lives and we're just like, what was I thinking? Uh, in our lives, we have made, some of us at least, whoppers of mistakes, bad choices. But don't you realize that all the threads and all the knots, everything that comes together in our lives is the grace of God. It has brought us to this point. And you may say, well, you know what? I really don't like this point in my life. Yeah, but you don't know what comes after. You're assuming that you know. I think great humility is required. And then, just as Job does with open hands, receive the grace of God and say, I repent in dust and ashes. All this time I thought I had it figured out. We want to be in control and we aren't. I think it is God and his gentle grace that reminds us, no, you're not. I've taken care of you. I will take care of you. The good choices, the bad choices. The up times, the down times. He is there every step of the way. And it is this epilogue to the book of Job that just drives home to us the truth of God's graciousness to his people. Let's pray together. Our Father, in our pride, we think if we had it to do over, we'd do it so much better. We don't realize that where we are right now is by your grace. If we had it to do over, we would still need your grace. And some of the, the things we did that we thought were really bad decisions, in the scheme of things, though we may not even see it now, all these years later, actually the right thing. It's something that you wanted. You are so gracious. And yet I think we take your grace for granted. We do not embrace it and therefore we do not reflect it to those around us. May your Holy Spirit bring this truth home to our hearts as only he can. May we see that you, in fact, do love us. You're angry sometimes. You seek to correct us. You don't make our paths easy all the time, but you have a purpose in it. I guess, again, I ask that in the days to come we would meditate and think these things through. Now we ask that your grace and your spirit would go with us as we leave this place. By your grace, may we be lights in a world of darkness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please, as we sing the doxology together?
after the benediction, if I could have you just sit back down for a few minutes, we have something to take care of. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated just for a moment. One of the things that we appreciate, or one of the things that makes our worship what it is, is is John Schreiner and John's playing. And uh, we don't pay John. Uh, This is something he does for us out of the goodness of his heart. Uh, We appreciate it. And so every year we try to do something for him around his birthday. It's the one chance we get to, to, in a tangible way, say thank you. And so, uh, let me disconnect myself here.